ahead and take a seat. Feel free to grab your Bible and open with me to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi. If you can't find Malachi, look for the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and then just flip one book to the left. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament as we have it before us. It is the last word of prophecy that uh, God gives to his people before 400 years of silence, before Jesus comes. And uh, it wraps up our time together in the Minor Prophets. And that is sort of a sad thing to think about because it has been quite a joy to go through the Minor Prophets together week by week. We did six of the Minor Prophets last week, and then we did, uh, sorry, last year, and then we're doing six of them this year. And that will have been all 12, and they have been just, I mean, they've been good for my heart and my soul, and I know, as talking with you all, that it has blessed you to be in those books together. Uh, again, I said this earlier, but if you are new, welcome. We hope that you would feel welcome together uh, as we gather together as a church outdoors. It's a beautiful, beautiful day. It's, it's quite bright up here this morning uh, and quite warm, um, but you never know what you're going to get. Well, you kind of always know what you're going to get. It's going to be either, it's going to be nice in Southern California. We are, we are quite blessed. Well, uh, next week for us as a church begins Advent. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with Advent, Advent is a season of preparation, a season of waiting, a season where we week by week anticipate the, 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 the incarnation, the Son of God, come to be born on Christmas, at Christmas time, right? That's what we celebrate on Advent. We sing songs of waiting and longing for the Messiah to come, longing for Christ to come again in our hearts, again in our midst, again in our lives. And as a church, one of the things we do historically to celebrate Advent is the lighting of the Advent candles, well, normally what that looks like is we have a, a table, and on that table we have candles, and then um, each week you've got five candles, one that is bigger than the others, and then four that are sort of smaller. In some traditions, those candles are different colors with different symbols and placed into a circle, but we've had five candles, and then what happens is week by week we light a new candle, and as the light grows bigger, then on Christmas Eve we light the biggest candle. That candle symbolizes Christ coming into the world. The light gets brighter. Well, last year we did Advent candles, and it was something. We were here outdoors, and it was bright as day, and we got these nice big candles, and they were difficult to light, difficult to keep lit, difficult for people to see. And even though we were saying the right things, it, it just wasn't taking. So this year I have been thinking, how do I create um, Advent candles that, that remain true to the beauty of the symbolic reminder while simultaneously working in this context. So I decided that I was going to, I'm going to experiment a bit. And so a couple of weeks ago, I purchased, like kind of, I purchased the finest fake candles that you could find, right? And here's the thinking, right? That's like, I looked at like, what, it's got to be a, a bigger, stronger flame for us to see. It can't go out when there's a little bit of wind. Uh, I sort of looked into that and I got into our home. I got some Amazon packages of um, these beautiful fake candles. And I got to tell you, when it's dark and you're far away and these things are on, boy, will they fool you. 
They look, I mean, they just look really good. They even have that nice little flicker that sort of happens that looks very sort of natural. It's beautiful. From a distance, and when it's dark out, these candles look fantastic. But the test isn't how they look in the dark from a distance because they need to be out here. So, so I went into uh, our outdoor space, and I took all of our candles. I set them up, and, uh, and I looked at them outdoors, and they look horrible. They just look so incredibly fake. When it's dark and at a distance, they look amazing. I mean, they'd pass for real candles. But when you get close in the daytime, there's not really enough light. There's certainly not heat. They don't really burn anything. Like, nothing about it is real. From a distance, when it's dark out, looks good. But if you look closer, you discover it's not actually real. I've come up with a solution. You'll see that next week. It's going to be great, I promise. But that analogy of the fake candle is something I have been thinking about since that moment because it ties into the book of Malachi. These fake candles in the dark and at a distance kind of give the impression that they're real candles. If you weren't paying too careful attention, and you walked into a room and it was dark and you didn't get too close, you would go, hey, that's, they got real candles in here. Those are really nice. But if you looked closely, if you shined a little light on them, you would discover that the candles aren't actually real candles. They look real on the outside, but they're fake. That is the state of religious practice in the book of Malachi. In the book of Malachi... God is writing to his people who have returned from exile. They are back in the land. The temple has been rebuilt. If you want to hear about the temple's rebuilding, we've been listening to Zechariah and also to Haggai talk about the rebuilding of the temple, but that happens before Malachi is written. And if you want to see that fleshed out, you can read the book of Ezra. But the temple has been rebuilt and practices, temple rituals are taking place again. Worship is taking place. The walls have even been rebuilt. If you want to know about the rebuilding of the walls in the city, again, we looked at that last week in Zechariah, but you could also read in Nehemiah, and you would hear the story of that. So, so the people have returned from exile, and they're returning to their lives of religious duty and practice. They're returning to their ways, but something is wrong. Deep down, even though externally, from a distance, you would look at them and say, oh, it looks like they're being faithful. If you looked more carefully, if you looked more closely, you would discover that their worship and their practice is actually unfaithful. That their hearts are actually far from God. They are, they are certainly faking it well enough. But a careful examination reveals that they are not actually practicing worship as they were created to. And so God, through his messenger, Malachi, comes and gives a message to his people. And that message has to deal with some different practices that they are practicing that just aren't, aren't right. And God will have a difficult Word for them 
It's been about 150 years since they returned from exile. And the prophet Malachi we know almost less about than any other minor prophet. The word Malachi, the I there is possessive meaning my, and the word Malek means messenger. So the name Malachi just means my messenger. God speaks to his people through his messenger. And even though this text is written a long time ago, we believe that what God says to his people then has the ability to transform and shape our lives today. So here's the outline for our time together this morning. First, we're going to talk about Israel's failures. So the first is failures. Then we'll talk about fickleness, fickleness, and lastly, faithfulness. Three F words. A lot of F words in this sermon. Failures, I mean, you know what I mean. Failures, fickleness, and faithfulness. I, yeah, that'd be a different kind of sermon. That would be a real popular sermon for people. You'd share that with everybody. Failures, fickleness, and faithfulness. So first we will look at the failures, of, the failures of God's people in the ways in which they have presented themselves externally as faithful, but deep down something is wrong, something is amiss. So here is our first failure in the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi is really God repeatedly telling his people, he's correcting them, he's repeatedly reminding them that they have gotten things wrong. And so the first failure has to do with leftovers. The book of Malachi opens with God reminding his people that he has loved them. And then he gives them his first failure. Malachi chapter 1 Verses 6 through 14. This is what the Lord says. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. Verse 8. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple door so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. And I will accept no offering from your hands. Verse 11. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. 
When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. The first failure of God's people was that they were bringing offerings. And if you looked at a distance, you would see God's people bringing offerings to the temple. You'd be going, look, they're doing the right thing. They're, they're bringing offerings. But look a little bit closer and you discover that they're not giving him their best. They're giving him leftovers. Now, they know that they're not supposed to do that. In Leviticus chapter 22, they had been instructed that when they were to give their offering, they were to choose their best animal. But instead of choosing their best, they're bringing before the Lord their injured, their lame, their weakest, their, the animals that they don't have much use for. That's who they are bringing for the offering. Not because they couldn't afford it, but because they chose to give the best to themselves. It's Thanksgiving week. Many of us will sit around tables with friends and family. How strange would it be if you arrived at someone's home or guests arrived at your home and when it came time for the meal, you poured out, pulled out the Tupperware from your fridge. You placed upon the table half-eaten turkey, partially dug into mashed potatoes, a little bit of leftover stuffing, the remnants of some cranberry sauce. And you said, dig into your guests. And they said, wait, wait, what? What's happened? Wait, are you tight on finances? And you said, oh no, I got plenty of money. I just love Thanksgiving so much that I got the food, ate it, and now I'm giving you the leftovers. You wouldn't do that to your guests. And yet God is saying that is precisely what they are doing to him. They're not giving him their best. If God is going to be God, he deserves your best. But instead, they're giving what they could spare. They are worshiping God in a way that disobeys God, expecting God's blessing. Isn't that remarkable? What they must be thinking in their heads as they prepare their offering that they're not supposed to bring. I wonder if they're thinking to themselves, well, you know what? I know that God has asked for our best, but we're not going to give him our best. We're going to give him our leftovers. I'm sure he'll accept that. I wonder if they think they're being sincere. We love sincerity in our age, don't we? Sincerity is almost one of the highest virtues. We want to be sincere worshipers. And we have this attitude, well, if I'm sincere, it must be right. Well, that's nonsense. You can certainly be sincerely wrong. In order to worship God properly, you must be sincere, but you can't only be sincere. When we had our daughter Zoe, we, uh, we got a, a car seat for her, right? They, you have to get a car seat for your, for your infant. They won't even let you leave the hospital without a car seat. So we got the car seat, and I had installed the car seat correctly. I knew that it was incorrect. It was anchored properly. It was ready to go. 
And I had got her in the car seat. And I remember my mother was with me as I was placing Zoe into the car seat. And the car seat had the strap that went over one arm and over the other arm and connected. And then you had another strap that came between the legs. And that connected. And that was your three-point harness for the, for the seat for, my, for Zoe. And so I took her as my first child, first time. I, I set her in there. And I put her right arm and right leg through the armhole. I put her left arm and left leg through the other armhole, and then I struggled to snap it. And my mother looked at me and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm what, are you, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm putting her in her car seat. And she said, yeah, but she's not supposed to ride around like that. Like, that's not how this is supposed to be. You've got this all wrong. I was sincere, but I was wrong. I was sincere but I was actually putting my daughter into a dangerous car seat. Sincere, yes, but sincerity in our worship is not enough. We must be more than sincere. God had required that they would give God their best, in part because it would symbolize in their lives that God is worthy of their best, but also because God wanted them to give their most perfect animal so that they might one day see a picture of the way in which God would give his perfect son for their sins. And yet, they were content with giving God their leftovers, which asks us, do we give God our best, or do we give God our leftovers? If you're anything like me, you probably have somewhere in your house at any given time a bag of clothes that you plan on taking to the Goodwill or the Salvation Army, right? That bag takes a long time to make it from our house into the back of the car, and then way longer, it seems like, from the back of the car to the actual Goodwill, but that's typically what we do, right? If you get new clothes, you want to be a good person, so you take your old clothes and then you want to donate them. And those centers are needed and useful and wonderful, but they never get, they never get someone who goes shopping and buys brand new clothes and then brings them brand new stuff. It's always our leftovers, and I wonder if that's how we worship God. Does he get the best does he get the best that you have? Does he get your best time? Or is prayer and scripture when you've got leftover time? When you get extra money, does, does he get your best portion? Or does he get what's left over? God comes to his people and says, yeah, it looks like you're worshiping me, but you have not made me first. You are not giving me what's best. You, have not actually, you do not actually have me as God. What you give the best to matters. And for the Christian, if you are here this morning, you are to give God your best. So that's the first failure. The second failure in the book of Malachi has to do, the first is leftovers. The second failure, for those of you taking notes, is marriage. The second failure is marriage. Malachi chapter 2 verse 10 says this. Do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. 
A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves, desecrated the sanctuary by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Verse 13, another thing you do. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. So first, God corrects them about their offering being left over. Secondly, God corrects them about marriage. Their second failure has to do with marriage. What was happening? They were being unfaithful to God by tearing apart their families. They were doing this in two ways. God had told them from the beginning that he wasn't so much interested in keeping his people racially pure or ethnically pure, but he was interested in keeping them religiously pure. And what happened is that his people began to start marrying women who worshipped other gods. And God says, do not do that. Again and again, the Lord says in the Bible that when you marry someone who worships another god, it divides your own heart against the god you love most. And as for Christians, we believe that in order for us to love best, we must love God the most. And the men were marrying women who worshipped other gods or who were apathetic towards God, and it was impacting their familial worship. That's one of the interesting things about Christian faith. I hope you hear that this morning. Maybe you're here this morning as a non-Christian, and your conception of God is that worship really just involves what we do on Sundays. The Bible teaches that what worship that we do of God is our whole lives. And yes, God even cares about our marriages and about our families. The men were marrying other women who worshipped other gods and it made it incredibly challenging for them to be faithful to God and for their children to be faithful to God. It was treating marriage as though who I marry is really all about me. And God says that is not the way it's supposed to be. So problem number one is Israel, right, Judah, they're, they're marrying women who worship other gods. That's a problem. Secondly, the second problem is that they're being unfaithful to their wives through wrongful divorce. They are getting divorced from their wives because they want to. Now, the Bible is clear there are reasons for divorce, but not liking your wife anymore is not one of them. Look, I, we live in a culture where marriage is not held in the esteem that it once was. 
50 years ago, you could not get divorced without having some sort of fault. Then we introduced what's called no-fault divorce, the birth of irreconcilable differences. We live in a day and age, and even in a city, where in which it's not uncommon to hear words like conscious uncoupling. Couples who are married are married for a while and then decide, you know what, we just don't want to do this anymore, and so therefore we're going to get divorced. The number one album on the charts right now was released by Adele a few days ago. It's an entire album, essentially, about how she wasn't happy in marriage and is seeking to find happiness in and through her divorce. The reality is, the state can say, our world can say, whatever it wants to about marriage. But we as Christians get our conception of marriage, not from the state or from pop culture, but from our God, the author and creator of marriage. And what God has said is that marriage is fundamentally about him and his faithfulness to us. You see, in the first problem, they were marrying people who worshipped other gods. And the Bible is clear. If, if you are not a Christian and the person you marry is not a Christian, and then one of you becomes a Christian, you are to stay married and to honor that marriage as God honors that marriage. And like I said, there are reasons that the Bible talks about getting divorced. But divorce is something that can happen. It is not something that ever must happen in Scripture. But marriage is supposed to be about God and his faithfulness. You see, the, the attitude of Judah was, hey, we can marry whoever we want, and we can get divorced whenever we want. And God says, no, you're to worship me by the way you structure your family. But instead, you're making marriage all about you. You're saying, well, I'm going to marry her even though she doesn't worship God. Even though God's most important to me, it doesn't matter what God thinks. I'll just marry her anyway. It's up to me. Or, I don't really like this relationship anymore. I kind of am interested in that, in that person, so I'm going to end this relationship to go find my own personal happiness. People today get married to make themselves happy. People get divorced often to make themselves happy. If you're looking for happiness in your marriage, if the primary place you look is for happiness is in your marriage, you will not find it. Not the happiness you were made for. The happiness you were made for is found in God and in God alone. I got the privilege of doing a wedding yesterday. And it's always amazing to stand before a couple who's going to get married, to look them both in the eye in the presence of God and this company, that company, and declare to them that if they want to have a great marriage, they cannot make their marriage the most important thing in their life. That the key to a successful marriage is by making sure that we pursue Christ above our spouse, God above the person that we are in a relationship with. Marriage is not about how you get your needs met. Marriage is about demonstrating God's love to one another faithfully. So choosing who you marry is connected to worship. Choosing to stay faithful to the person you married is connected to worship. And yet we think too little about it, don't we? We often live as though, no, I worship God, but who I marry, that's my decision completely. Keep God out of it. That isn't the case. 
Or sure, I worship God, but I'll get divorced if I want to. If, it's in, if it impedes my happiness, then certainly I'm going to get divorced because my happiness is the most important thing. That's how we act, isn't it? And yet, who you marry and how you stay faithfully married matter to God. So that is their second failure. Their third failure is found in Malachi chapter 2, verses 17, and then chapter 3, 13 through 15. So 2, 17, then 3, 13 through 15. Their first was about leftovers. Their second about marriage. This is their third failure. Malachi 2, 17 says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? Chapter 3, verse 13. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. The third failure for God's people has to do with injustice. Injustice. They're complaining to God saying, this isn't fair. God, you're so unfair. You're not dealing with justice as quickly as we want you to. One of the things that they noticed, right, was that justice was something that they cared about, but they had stopped caring about it, and they began to be and participate in injustice and indifference to injustice because they didn't see God doing enough for them. What's remarkable is that while they are complaining to God for his lack of justice, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, God declares that he is still planning on sending his messenger to them. In other words, the God who they are complaining to is the God who cares about justice more than they do. And God will deal with justice on his time. Just because justice doesn't or hasn't come on your timeline does not mean it is not coming. They were complaining to the God who had already planned to send Jesus to deal with the sins of the world. Not only that, but they had short-term memory loss. They had, God had delivered them time and time and time and time again. Brothers, sisters, let me remind you, God cares about justice more than you do. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 5, God institutes that his people, that how they treat their neighbors would reflect how they worship. He says, I will come to put you on trial, verse 5. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. God says, I care that my people live right with their neighbors. You can't say you are a Christian. You can't say you worship God, the God of justice, and also say you don't care about justice. To be indifferent to justice is to be against justice. God cares about how we treat 
our neighbors. Now, now maybe you find yourself here this morning. Maybe you've been accusing God of allowing something to happen. And you're frustrated about it. And you're wondering, God, how could you let this happen? Or why don't you deal with this situation? Or why don't you bring justice in this moment? And maybe you're frustrated. Because you haven't seen God deal with injustice. And so maybe you're tempted this morning to conclude he doesn't care. Friends, this just isn't so. In fact, starting next week, we will slowly march towards Christmas Day. And if the Christmas season, which is about so much, it is certainly about God coming to deal with injustice. But our temptation, as you know, is to say the real problem is in someone else's life. And Mary, a young girl, is visited by an angel who declares that she will have a son, that his name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. When you perjure, you are sitting against God and your neighbor. When you are mistreating the oppressed, you are sitting against God and your neighbor. When you steal, you are sitting against God and your neighbor. When you lie, when you cheat, when you defraud, you are sitting against God and your neighbor. How you treat your neighbors matters. So the third failure of God's people in justice, their final fourth failure, the final fourth failure is about theft. This is Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. It says this, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But, but you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse and your whole nation because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your field will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. See, in the, in the first failure, it was about them not giving their best. In the fourth failure, regarding stealing, it has to deal with them not giving God their all. God's people had been commanded to take a tenth, the first tenth of everything that they produced, and to give that God as a tithe. They were commanded to tithe, not because God needs their tithe, but because it is to represent that they trust God with everything they have. God wants us to trust him with everything we have. We are not to be general contractors of our lives. 
See, a general contractor has a project. Let's call it, in your case, the, the, the self-project. And a general contract subcontracts out tasks to others. And sometimes we do this with God. We say, hey, God, here, you can have my Sunday worship. I'll see how you do with that, and then maybe I'll trust you with more. Oh, that's going pretty well. Now I'm going to give you my leisure time. See how that works. Okay, that's going pretty well. Now I'm going to give you uh, my vacation time. Maybe I'll do something for missions. Okay, good. I'll give up my, my Saturday for a serve project. A general contract subcontracts out other areas, seeing how they go in the building of the project, but they remain in charge. God cannot be subcontracted in your life. God must be the general contractor. God is either Lord of all in your life, or God is not Lord at all in your life. So because they were not giving their tenth, they weren't giving their tithe, because they were withholding that, it was like robbing God. One of the best ways to test your trust of God is with your finances. We give an offering every week, as you know. And part of the reason we do that is because it's a symbol of how we are giving God our whole lives, declaring, God, everything I have is yours. It's all a gift from you. I'm giving this portion. I'm giving the first to you and to your kingdom as a way of declaring that it's all yours and that I am only a steward of what it is you have placed in my hands. Some of us, we don't give an offering. Now, we're not commanded to give a tithe. For some of you, that will feel legalistic. As Christians, we are no longer bound by the tithe. But as Christians, we still give God a tenth or more as a way of declaring, God, this is all yours. You get our best. You get our first. Some of you don't give because you think that you come first. Others don't give because we say, ah, I can't. I can't afford to give because i got to put a certain amount in savings. And savings, that's where my real security lies. Some of us think, well, I can be faithful with just a little. I, or, sorry, I can't be faithful with just a little, so I'm not going to be faithful at all. It's remarkable how many of us want to be faithful, but then we feel like we can't, so we just choose to be wholly and completely unfaithful. God says you were made to give him your first and your best, as we already talked about. And when you keep your first, when you refuse to give, when you hold on to it, when you become tight-fisted, the Bible says, it says you are robbing him. And this is the only place where God says, test me, test me. Be a faithful, generous giver and watch the ways in which I care for you. How you give matters. So these are the failures that God talked to his people about in the book of Malachi. These are the failures. And here's what's crazy. I spent most of the time on failures. I'll be quick as we move to the next two points. Here's what's crazy. God says, you've been unfaithful to me in your offering. You don't give me your best. You've been unfaithful to me in your relationships. You treat marriage and divorce as though it's, it's really, it's all about you and your happiness. He says, you've been unfaithful to me when it comes to injustice. You've been indifferent and you have, you have not treated your neighbor rightly. He says, you've been unfaithful to me in your giving of your offering. You have not, you have not let me be or declare that I am Lord of all by the way you give, right? Here's what's crazy. Fickleness. 
Here's, here's about the fickleness of God's people. Here are these failures, but you have to see this. This is written just a few decades after Nehemiah. And in Nehemiah chapter 9, it declares that there were all these things that their forefathers were unfaithful in that they committed to be faithful in. If you read Nehemiah 10, it's a joy to read. You'll see them promise to give God their best, promise to tithe, promise to honor God with their marriages, promise to be a just people. And a few decades later, they have completely abandoned their promises. They are so Fickle, to be fickle is to quickly change one's mind. They are so fickle, and I am too, and you are too. We come up with a plan. God, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give this. I'm going to commit to this. I'm going to serve in this way. I'm going to love my spouse in this way. I'm going to hand my dating life to you. I'm going to serve. We, we make commitments. God, I'll never do that again. Deliver me from that again. We make commitments, and then just a few Days, weeks, months later, we abandon that plan. We come up with a plan. We change our minds on the plan. And sometimes we are even worse than where we began. Is your problem and my problem sincerity? No. Is our problem accountability? No. Your problem and my problem is that we are prone to wonder prone to leave the God we love. You don't need reform this morning. You need rebirth. You don't just need a strategy. You need a savior. You don't just need a new law. You need new life. Amen? And God could have said, and if I were God, I think I would have said, you know what? I'm done. You're so fickle. You promise you break your promise. You promise you break your promise. You promise you break your promise. The Old Testament, in some ways, could be summed up with God's faithfulness, then they're unfaithful, then God's faithful, then they're unfaithful. I mean, that's like the whole Old Testament. And you'd think that God would say, I'm done, but he doesn't, which leads to faithfulness. Malachi ends, the book of Malachi ends with God declaring that he is going to rescue his people. It speaks of a Messiah and of a messenger that God's going to send himself to deal with our unfaithfulness, with our fickleness, that God's going to come to bring life and bring peace out of God's love. The answer to your fickleness, to your failures, to your unfaithfulness is God's faithfulness. He did not abandon us. He will not abandon us. He has not abandoned you. So I don't care if this morning you hear this message, which is hard because it should be convicting in some places. If you turn, if you turn from your sin and repent, I don't care if you do that for the first time this morning or the 500th time this morning. Regardless of what you do, God is ready to forgive. He's ready to make you new. The answer to your failures and to your fickleness is God's faithfulness. He wants to be Lord of your life. He wants, to, he wants your best. He's given you his best. He's given you his son, Jesus. And he says to you this morning, that if you turn from your unfaithfulness, from your failures, and you turn to him, the God who is faithful, he will forgive you, 
He will make you clean. He will wash you and cleanse you. He will make you new. He will put his life and his spirit inside of you. That, that is the most beautiful thing in the world is that God does not give up on his people. And so God, who is here with us to this morning, meeting us in the book of Malachi, offers himself to us again. The question for you this morning, will you repent? Will you turn away from your failures? Will you receive Jesus this morning? Will you enthrone him as king and as Lord? Will you trust him with your marriages? Will you trust him with your best, your time, your money? Will you entrust him? Will you follow him faithfully in how you treat your neighbors and care about justice? Will you allow God to be Lord of your life? Because if God isn't God of all in your life, then God is not God or Lord at all in your life. But he comes to us this morning and declares that our standing with him does not depend on us, but on his faithfulness. Our failures, and we are so fickle, but God is faithful. Amen? Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for salvation. We thank you that you come to rescue and save us. Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning who are not Christian. I pray that they would understand this morning that Christianity is not just about vague kinds of religious platitudes or Sunday attendance, singing some songs and then listening to a sermon. It's about a life of worship where in which we give our whole lives to you because you have given your whole self to us. God, I pray for the non-Christians here this morning that they would come to know you. They would receive you as Lord and Savior. They would turn from their sins. They would believe, put their faith in you, and find you and crown you Lord and King in their lives. And Lord, I pray for those this year, this morning who are Christian, who, who maybe have from a distance appeared to be that way, but upon closer inspection have been unfaithful in giving you their best, have been unfaithful in giving you an offering and trusting you with everything, have been unfaithful with you in their marriages, how they've treated their spouses. Lord, I, I, the way they've been indifferent towards injustice. Lord, I pray that you would convict them by your spirit and call them back to you, that they would repent and turn to you and find your forgiveness and grace to be inexhaustible. That's how good you are, Lord, that we can't, we can't use up too much of your grace. Your grace is amazing. And you offer it to us again and again and again. Every morning is new. Today is new. Lord, we want to be a faithful people in this world. We want to live out faithful lives, believing that our whole lives are worship. And Lord, we look forward to Christmas because our world desperately needs Jesus. And we long for him to come again and come anew in our lives. So Lord, focus our hearts and minds on you this morning as we worship you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.